In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. I came of age in a tradition of conservative Christianity that laid special emphasis on the power of Christ's sacrifice, on the necessity of converting the heart, on the lifelong benefits of studying the scriptures, and on the natural spiritual work of proclaiming the gospel. What I learned in the company of those who were at that time called evangelicals formed me in enduring spiritual habits that found their home when I came back to the Anglican roots of my Wesleyan childhood faith. As Anglicans were the first and best evangelicals, so in seeking the excellence of that way of practicing the faith, I was led, as it were, from tent revivals in the fields to the quiet prayerfulness of churches like St. Matthew's. Like any tradition, though, evangelicals also had their peculiarities. Among the cultural quirks of life as an evangelical in particular was the annual observance of the mountaintop experience. At least once a year, and usually at a retreat or camp, evangelicals would spend three days carefully reiterating the core scriptural pillars of creation, fall, prophecy, gospel, and faith in Christ. This culminated on the final evening of the retreat, at which time a heightened emotional environment was curated, during which the retreat leader hammered home the fact that Jesus' atoning sacrifice on the cross was indeed for each of us, and then ushered us to receive it again, usually with a lot of tears of contrition and gratitude. This was the mountaintop experience of my youth. The whole year led up to it. It was when the faith felt most real, though at times it had the effect of making the rest of time feel ordinary by comparison. One gentle critique of this practice was that it set up an opposition in life of a Christian. Only on the mountain was life real, and the rest of time was spent trying to cling to it, sometimes at the expense of attentiveness to the demands of love in the moment. The mountaintop experience was often rightly critiqued in this way, but it must be said that it, the mountaintop experience cannot be dispensed with easily or entirely. In fact, the mountaintop experience is a frequent biblical motif. The Lord seems very much to enjoy meeting with people at pivotal times in this exact way. Consider Moses in the Exodus, who encounters God on Mount Sinai in the burning bush to receive his calling and who later would return to that same mountain to receive the law for Israel and to see more than any other before him the glory of the Lord revealed. Consider as well, though, how it was on a mountaintop that Moses was permitted to view the promised land while being informed that he himself would not enter it, how it was on the mountaintop that Moses was led by the Lord to die in the wilderness. Next, consider Elijah, the greatest of the prophets until John the Baptist. 
Elijah's faith in the Lord was gloriously rewarded on Mount Carmel when he confronted and conquered the evil prophets of Baal. But it was also on Mount Horeb that Elijah hid in a cave from those who sought his life, in near despair, thinking he was all alone and waiting on the cliff's edge for the stillness of God. The mountain can be the place where deep and intimate communion with God is known, and also where a profound test and challenge to that faith can be experienced. It is where we can be shown clearly our own real limits, but also where God reveals himself to be sufficient in that weakness. Jesus himself knew this dual quality of the mountaintop experience. It was on a mountaintop that he received his third temptation in the wilderness, presented with all the kingdoms of the world. And it was there on the mountaintop that he received the consolation of the angels when he had passed the test to commence his ministry. It was on a mountain that Jesus gave the Sermon of the Mount as the lawgiver as in the time of Moses, and on a mountain that he miraculously fed the multitudes. It was on a mountain on which sat Jerusalem and its temple that Jesus accomplished on the cross the suffering foretold for the Son of Man the same mountain on which Abraham had been called in ancient times to sacrifice his son Isaac, the same mountain on which it was said the Garden of Eden itself once stood. And it was on the mountain that our Lord led his disciples and was lifted up into heaven, the last mountaintop experience recorded in the scriptures, until, of course, the vision of the new heavens and new earth, where all the faithful are to be gathered, on the one remaining mountain in all the world, the new Jerusalem. The transfiguration of Christ on the mountain shapes our understanding of all mountaintop experiences in at least three ways. First, it reveals that all genuine mountaintop experiences are connected, that none of them are a matter of private revelation or of interpretation but a communal revelation that has unfolded over many centuries and to many people. Abraham, Moses, Elijah, Peter, James, and John, they all behold the same God in the face of the same Jesus Christ. And this is revealed in our gospel lesson this morning. None of these revelations ever disagree with or negate any of those other revelations. They all speak as one. They all point to Jesus, whether before or after. The covenant, the law, the prophets, the gospel, and the faith, they all look to Christ himself. What is revealed on Mount Tabor is the end of all things revealed in the midst of all things. The glorious Christ proclaimed by his Father in the Spirit. True revelation is not the reward of some numinous spiritual genius, but rather a gift given to some for the benefit of all. That Peter, James, and John are brought together to the mountain suggests that the revelation is to be held in common by the disciples of the apostolic faith. They received a vision there of what will be revealed to all the faithful, 
and that they join Moses and Elijah suggests to us that any revelation we might think we are having is never going to be fundamentally different from what is revealed by the witness of the scriptures, of the law, prophets, gospels, epistles, and apocalypse. The word and the spirit are always on the same team. Second, the transfiguration reveals that the mountaintop experience is connected to the whole of life around it. It is not, as we sometimes can see it, a replacement for the ordinary Christian life, but rather the orientation and then the reorientation of that ordinary life. For the apostles, the transfiguration reveals Christ in his glory and it affirms his words to them at the foot of the mountain, that he must go up to Jerusalem, that he must suffer, that he must die. A message and teaching that they continually and would continually resist. It is the case in the Christian life that diligence to the daily taking up of our crosses to follow Jesus can seem far less preferable to to some intense and special vision or task that we alone are granted. It can be easy for us to be tempted by the desire to be spectacular in the spiritual life. But the transfiguration cements through an extraordinary experience what Jesus had said in plain words at the foot of the mountain. His words and his signs always go together. And this reorders our perspective on the Christian life to see more clearly that the astonishing sign always follows the plainly spoken word of our Lord. And it suggests to us that if we hope at all to be present for the mountaintop, we can do no better than to quietly attend to the Lord as he leads us and speaks his word to us in all the valleys in between. Third, the transfiguration reveals that the God to whom we are called on the mountain to meet is the one also who leads us there and is the one who walks down the mountain with us. The mountaintop experience is not, as we sometimes are led to think, the only place where God really is. And we must be wary of the Christian tendency to privilege a revivalism that disparages the ordinary presence of God in the normal course of life, in order to point us to that special place just over yonder where God actually is, and which we will usually find usually requires some sort of price of admission or subscription fee to know and enjoy. Rather, to be found in prayer with the brethren, to receive the same sacraments that have always been received from generations, to look for, converse with, and listen to the Lord in the mundane details of life and the flow of love's demands. This is where God truly is. If we are occasionally refreshed by a sudden gift of knowing he is with us and that he is the Lord with us, then it is for our consolation and a reminder that he is with us always. Enthusiasm and felt consolation come and go. The Lord is constant. 
We learn through these contrasting experiences of life that our Lord is as present to us on the mountain as he is to us in all of life, even if it is there that we are given the sight to see him most clearly for a time. Ultimately, the end of the Christian life is to arrive where Peter, James, and John arrived, on top of Mount Tabor. Beyond scripture and beyond sacrament, at the end of all things, there is Jesus himself, whom we shall see face to face in the new creation. Nothing will hide his face from our sight there. To those who have, in the course of time and life, sought him in his church, in his word, at his altar, and in the hearts and minds of their fellow faithful people. Like it was for Peter, it will be the last sight that we ever wish to see. We will want to make our home there, because all of life will become about him the moment we see him, and only the things that we find in him and through him on that last great mountain of New Jerusalem and New Eden will matter. And it is there where we will at last be brought to rest. But until then, we will continue to offer in the valley of life the words of the psalmist when he says, I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.